Warning. The podcast you are about to hear contains coarse language and tells stories of witches. Email us at missingwitches at gmail.com if you want to be heard. And blessed be. We want to make a big tent out of the word witch. We want to include healers, shamans, artists, creators, all kinds of strong women. As Ipisita Roy Chakraverti says, every woman is a witch and all are hunted. Our story today is about a woman who didn't want to be identified with witchcraft, although the word did get slung at her. So maybe telling her story in this context is a dick move. But we just feel like her story deserves more telling. And her art and connection to the earth called out to us for more study. And the power of her poetry merit being included in the big tent of magic. So as usual, Amy and I will try to welcome this witch we've been missing thoughtfully in order to learn something, cast a little light, and just not fuck it up too much. You aren't being a proper woman, therefore you must be a witch. You must be a witch. This particular story ties the Beatles, Walt Disney, and the CIA's secret MKUltra mind control experiments to a small elderly woman who, purified and late at night, high in the mountains in Oaxaca province, would become one with God and heal with words. A woman who Mexican poet Homero Aridicis called the greatest visionary poet in 20th century Latin America. I take little one who springs forth and I see God. I see him sprout from the earth. He grows and grows big as a tree, as a mountain. His face is placid, beautiful, serene as in the temples. At other times, God is not like a man. He is the book, a book that is born from the earth, a sacred book whose birth makes the world shake. It is the book of God that speaks to me in order for me to speak. It counsels me. It teaches me. It tells me what I have to say to men, to the sick, to life. The book appears and I learn new words. These are the words and this is the story of Maria Sabina, the contemporary Mazatec curandera who allowed Westerners to participate in the healing vigil known as the velada had her story told on the cover of Time magazine, and saw her tiny, isolated community transformed into a transcendental hippie mecca or madhouse that shaped the world. Maria Sabina isn't missing in the same way as some other witches. Her image is printed on t-shirts and sold at head shops. Her impact on a psychedelic history of the modern world is famous in some circles. She gave the world magic mushrooms, so hundreds of thousands of tech bros micro-dosing in glass towers in Manhattan, steampunk music lovers in the desert, middle-aging parents on vacations in the woods, artists looking for other vision, and over-prescribed depressives looking for a better way all have her to thank, though they may not know her name. They may not know or remember that a 60s subculture beat a path of thousands of hippie seekers to her door once the news broke about a magic that opened minds and brought you face to face with God. Maria Sabina was a Mazatec indigenous woman born in 1894. 
The Mazatec traced their origins back thousands of years. By the 1300s, they were a free, independent people with two empires, one in the highlands, or the east, and another in the lowlands. These kingdoms were invaded by the Mexica, the Aztec emperor, and then the Spanish colonizers arrived in Mazatec territory in 1520. The colonizers try to suppress and eliminate the indigenous ritual and religion. They build churches and work on conversion, but they also document the fact of ritual hallucinogens and their healing powers. And a couple hundred years later, this is how the West finds Maria Sabina. In 1954, gigantic development projects begin in the area. Hydroelectric dams are built, large tracts of the jungle are cut down. It's private banks supporting the monoculture of sugarcane and the development of pasture for cattle. With the construction of the dam, the lowland Mazatec lost the equivalent of 50% of their usable land. About 22,000 Mazatec who inhabited the basin were relocated some 250 kilometers away from their traditional lands. The mountain Mazatec communities didn't immediately get access to the new services provided by the dam, the banks, the roads. Their isolation also gave them a temporary reprieve. That is until two independent researchers, fascinated by mushrooms, made their way to her door. The Wassons are weird characters. Gordon Wasson tells a story a couple different times in his books of having become fascinated by mushrooms and starting down a personal research project tunnel that would end up lasting decades because one day he was out walking in the woods in New York with his lovely Russian bride when she exclaimed with glee and ran off to start gathering mushrooms in the woods. He thought this was a macabre idea that would probably make them all sick, but instead the mushrooms were delicious and he started to pay attention. She explained, the cultures outside of North America have valued the mushroom differently. Over time, Wasson and his wife traced out these opposing attitudes into two extremes and reasoned that while some cultures retained a fondness and love of mushrooms and others a death and rot-related fear, both may have come from the same lost history. They realized the mushroom in ancient history could have been deeply sacred. That profound feeling drives extreme if opposite reactions today. I mean, the same logic could be applied to certain attitudes towards women, if you think about it. The impulse to shame and control and call her sinner and slut and witch versus the nearly as crazed impulse to throw her on a mother virgin pedestal could point to a time when she was tremendously powerful and profoundly sacred. Just saying. Motivated by this idea, Wasson and his wife trace scattered references to sacred mushrooms all over the world, and eventually they find Maria Sabina. She is not actually the first to allow them to join a ritual, but she makes the greatest impact because Wasson's experience with her is the one he ends up writing for Time magazine. There is some conspiracy theory and some true secret governmental fuckery at this part of the story. Because the Wassons went to Hautla in Oaxaca that time on a small grant, which on the surface appeared to be a totally regular research grant, but which we now know since the publication of the Project Artichoke MKUltra documents was actually directly funded as part of the CIA's widespread investigation into the possibilities of mind control as a weapon. 
If by chance you haven't gone down the Wikipedia hole of reading about the secret CIA program MKUltra that involved a crazy range of torture, including electrical and chemical experiments on veterans, the mentally ill, the homeless, even right here in Montreal, I recommend it. Maybe don't do it high. The Wassons wrote several beautiful books, and they coined the term entheogens, a class of psychoactive substances that induce spiritual experience. They wrote about entheogens as the origin of human religion. This is a lot of loving effort to go to if your real goal is to disguise mind control research, so they probably weren't all in on the MK Ultra stuff. But the fact that Gordon Wasson's day job was VP of PR for corporate industrial financier J.P. Morgan has got to raise your eyebrows. They promised Maria Sabina not to reveal her identity or location, but somehow promises were broken. And not long after the essay appeared in Time magazine with Wasson on the cover, avant-garde icons of the counterculture start rolling up to her door. There are stories of young hippies taking 17 hours on the bus through the mountains to arrive in Haldla, only to find the Beatles' private plane parked in the town center. Others tell of swimming by a waterfall after a trip to find Walt Disney's signature carved on a rock face. The Rolling Stones go off the radar for a bit and reappear with a hallucinogenic art film called Performance. The 1970 Rolling Stone magazine review called it a heavy trip Stunning in the sense of a body blow, and if Woodstock presented one sort of reality, performance presents another sort, a dark yin to Woodstock's yang, a slow love-death dance liberally spiced with magic mushrooms. Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Pete Townsend of The Who, according to the stories, they all were there, and they brought legions of hippie followers behind them. With so many moneyed tourists arriving, it becomes clear there's money to be made, and various residents start selling white people a ride on the sacred psilocybin. A ritual that required a gifted guide and poet and seer, a blessed representative of God's children on this side, was dumbly, greedily, and sort of understandably ripped from its context, and the kids just used it to get high. What kills me is that Maria Sabina saw it all coming. The mushrooms, which she referred to as the holy children, showed her the white men and then the waves that would follow if she shared their power, and that the mushrooms' power would diminish from this dilution. But they showed her she must do it anyway. Maybe there are reasons beyond reasons? There's a lot of heartbreak in this story. Maria Sabina married twice both times to violent and abusive men who cheated on her. But there's ferocious strength as well, and a constant force of creation. Hoge Augustin recounts her husband found out that she was eating mushrooms to cure some of her old friends and beat her in front of them. Perhaps Maria cast a spell on him, or perhaps his karma suddenly caught up with him. Either way, that very night, strange noises were heard in the street, and the next morning he was found dead. In a documentary you can watch on YouTube, we'll link it in our notes along with every article we reference always. She says she bore 12 children and 5 died. Elsewhere she says she saw her son's murder coming before it came and she had to live and relive it. 
the strength required to endure this, to me, unbearable mix of power and powerlessness is beyond awesome. So often, Maria Sabina gets described as humble and then tragic. And I get that, but it also feels like pretty typical colonizer capitalist language for indigenous people, especially women. It doesn't do much justice or wrap its head around the real complexity and intentionality and other knowledge and power of that person's experience. And Maria Sabina had some deep knowledge. She spent decades of nights on her mountaintop using the power of her language to commune with the infinite. Wasson and others describe multiple occasions where in the course of a vereda, she, riding the lines of sight provided by her discourse with the holy children, provided information about future developments in distant places that all proved true. I picture this experience as being like space travel in the new Star Trek. Non-Trekkies, bear with me for like two quick seconds. In the new Star Trek show Discovery, a beautiful gay genius scientist named Paul Stamets discovers, with the help of the ostracized black half-Vulcan martial arts heroine named Michael Burnham, that they can ride a mycelium network that flows through space and time. These spores of the network are the veins of the galaxy. They discover that at a quantum level, there is no line between biology and physics, and the spores are the progenitors of panspermia, the building blocks of energy. Panspermia is the non-fictional theory that life on Earth originated from microorganisms or chemical precursors of life present in outer space. In the TV show, Paul and Michael realize that an animal is being tortured to make the spore drive work. And so Paul chooses to plug himself in instead. He's filled with the spores and drives the ship through space-time. It's painful and spectacular. And when I picture what those years of Maria Sabina's life were like, I kind of picture this. The spores connecting her to the greatest web. Vision beyond my comprehension. The woman who shepherds the immense. She first glimpsed the sacred life as a kid. They were just hungry, eating the sacred mushrooms on a mountainside, and she saw what they showed her about her life in the years to come. But her life as curandera really only begins after her husbands have died. Her daughters stay with her, and they braid her hair, and they sing her songs with her at night when she grows tired. Celibate, as the holy children require, she listens to the messages from across the planet, through the earth and air. Like every artist, she is awed and lit up by the poetry that comes to her, and she's generous with her gift. Her community can rely on her. She is the gifted guide, and she will sing all night long with her daughters, and they will surround you with their voices until you see a way for healing, either through darkness or light. When outsiders come, she welcomes them as well. But the tide of public opinion turns against her. Not all the seekers are scrupulous or respectful, and as more and more come, they draw too much attention, attention of the wrong kind to beautiful, isolated Hautla. The Mexican army can't ignore the drug trade happening in the mountains. They harass, lurk, trouble the community. At a breaking point, about a thousand people are rounded up and arrested and Maria Sabina's small adobe home is burnt to the ground.
Most accounts suggest that this was the act of frustrated villagers, but it could have been the Mexican army trying to shut off the source, or even imaginably a frustrated MKUltra assignment, because their investigation into mushrooms for social control didn't work out so well, did it? Though the hordes of hippies were messy and troublesome, you could at least say, on some level, their minds were opening. Once the idea was lit in the young, frustrated imagination that there could be more to life than the two-car garage, simple patriotism and consumption, happy obedience, there was no putting that particular Pandora back in her box. According to Wasson, Maria Sabina famously mourned that before you, nobody took the children simply to find God. They were always taken to cure the sick. From the moment foreigners arrived, the holy children lost their purity. They lost their force. They ruined them. Henceforth, they will no longer work. There is no remedy for it. In Women and Knowledge in Mesoamerica, the author puts a twist on this particular popular, heartbreaking end to the story of Maria Sabina, the great poet, the great healer of the Mestaca people, suggesting that her language always contained multiple realities. She is a multiplier of possibilities, a trickster, and if she told you the magic was gone, maybe that was because she wanted you to believe it. Herberito Yepes is my favorite writer about Maria Sabina so far. A poet who sees her as the same and who sees poetry as the new making of oneself. Poetry as the practical, not just verbal or utopian, invention of wholeness slash otherness. Poet as technicians of the sacred self. The construction, poesis, of oneself. Elsewhere, he writes, Maria Sabina was a wise one, not because she ate mushrooms and got into trips, but because she dominated a dynamic dictionary of meanings. She reproduced those meanings in the ceremonies. She rewrote that dynamic dictionary throughout her life. She was trying to revolutionize the praxis. That's why she even allowed foreigners to participate. She was trying to go beyond. She wanted to open the book. She wanted to open the book. This poet sees her in an iconic line with Lilith and Malinche and all black virgins. I'm going to quote such a chunk from him because I love him. The historic Malinche was given to Cortez as tribute by the Indian leaders in Tabasco along with 20 other women gold and poultry. She later served him as mistress and translator during the conquest. He refers to her as this tongue that I always have with me. The great shadow that Malinche has cast on the Mexican psyche secretly reappeared when Maria Sabina was, quote, discovered by life and Gordon Wasson. Like Malinche, Sabrina, in an act of cultural infidelity, had betrayed the secret knowledge of Mexican culture to foreigners. If Malinche is perceived as having been seduced by Cortez, Maria Sabina is sometimes seen as having been seduced by Wasson. Malinche and Sabina both become crying women, night-chanting women, and both were tongue women, interpreters of language, women who with their power over words guided men on their crucial journeys, one to the conquest of Mexico, the other to the conquest of self. 
Both were translator women of the Book of Language. Both Sabina and Malinche were women poets, women with power over language. Language can have a world-making power. It can reproduce power structures, tell us who we are, limit what we imagine we can be, or make us see new things. I honestly, totally believe this. As one example of the system-creative power of language, I often think about the difference between American and Canadian healthcare systems, and more fundamentally about what belief in a right to health communicates and engenders in people. Believing in each other in our right to care changes us. Canada, despite its own nightmarish history of colonialism and ongoing racism, has come a long way and has a long way to go in expanding the power of this magical idea. The Colonel expanded rapidly within 10 years of Tommy Douglas, the greatest Canadian, bringing free health care to his province of Saskatchewan. It had spread to the entire country. Although let's be real and careful, the Canadian healthcare system hasn't kept pace with Indigenous self-government and has perpetuated health inequality for Indigenous Canadians. There's more to be done. And we can be guided by the evidence we've already seen of the tremendous world-changing power in ideas and words. In the idea of a right to health and healthcare. The power in seeing each other and power in what we choose to obscure. The power of the word care. As Yepes points out, when the Zapatistas declared war in Chiapas on January 1st, 1994, the day that the North American Free Trade Agreement went into effect, it was charged that they were a group of foreigners from Europe and Central America who wore masks to hide their true identity. Another version of that accusation remains popular. In the midst of the drama of the Zapatista entry into Mexico City in March 2001, television crews didn't emphasize the hundreds of thousands of people in the streets cheering the rebels, nor the speeches of Subcomandante Marcos. The big news was the omnipresence of a group of foreigners protecting the Zapatista leaders, Italians who were known as monos blancos, white monkeys. It seems to be a rule of Mexican mainstream culture that whenever the Indian world presents itself to the public's attention, it is accused, as both Maria Sabina and the Zapatistas were, of serving hidden foreign interests. Behind this automatic assumption, of course, is the idea that Indians can't think for themselves. Somebody must be behind them, giving them bad ideas. It is a somewhat pessimistic and premature commonplace about Maria Sabina that she was to blame for the demise of esoteric shamanism in Mexico. She is declared the last shaman, the one who brought the whole tradition of revelation down by revealing its secrets. Yepes goes on. Why was Maria Sabina so painfully punished? Because of some of the peculiarities and ghosts of Mexican cultural history but also because she appeared to call into question the deep premises of mestizo society. In an era of increasing literacy, she neither knew how to read nor spoke Spanish, nor cared. And she nonetheless considered herself, and was considered by her peers, the wisest of all. She stood in contrast to the process of modernization that preoccupied the nation. Still more dangerous, she led an extraordinary life, but had a very common death. 
book woman, Jesus woman, light woman, died as malnutrition woman, anemia woman, bleeding woman. Her social misery was public evidence of the failure of the Mexican state to maintain even the most basic conditions for the preservation of physical and spiritual life. At the end of the 20th century, according to the Mexican government's estimates, 74% of Mexico's 100 million people lived in moderate or extreme poverty. Like too many Mexicans, she was blamed, wrongly, because she was poor, a woman, and an Indian, because of who she was and what she represented. But to an increasing number of Mexicans, half a century after her discovery, she is Maria Sabina, Great power woman, spirit woman, doctor woman, psychedelic woman, comics woman, feminist woman, clock woman, whose time is just beginning. That was another big fat Eberito Yepes quote because I can't help it. I spent a long time looking for an historian or theorist of Maria Sabina that I could really love, who could explain and explode all the heavy layered histories around her and obscuring her. And it seems appropriate that when I finally found who I'd been looking for, he is a poet. A boundary-slipping theorist from the border town of Tijuana, who has cast light with his writing on gay Mexican voices and fought to give true poet credit to Maria Sabina. So indulge me a little bit more. He writes, Sabina represents a critique on those who believe, like Octavio Paz and most mainstream poets, that poetry is a voice that comes from nowhere an ahistoric otherness. She challenges those who find the idea of having just a single identity possible, those who try to produce a voice without a context. Sabina's is also a critique on those who believe there can be radical experimentation without healing. Poets who don't go to the roots of society to cure ignorance, sickness, injustice, and poverty. Sabina was without a doubt a poet. She was not only a poet, but more importantly, poetry's wholeness. Her activity's goal was totality. She reached for the impossible, searching for a book beyond the book, having a new poetic body, breaking the differences between writing, reading, chanting, talking, dancing, and silence, removing pain from others, fighting for the survival of a great culture, investigating sounds, meanings, and languages, increasing wisdom, teaching, being radically self-critical, recognizing when one fails, when one is dying. Contemporary research into the possible uses of psilocybin the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, have focused in part on its ability, when coupled with careful therapy, to ease the terror and depression that come when one is dying. At clinical trials at multiple universities, including NYU, cancer patients receiving just a single dose of psilocybin experienced immediate and dramatic reductions in anxiety and depression, improvements that were sustained at least six months. This info is from a great article in a 2015 New Yorker issue on the history and contemporary research into therapeutic uses of God's children called Trip Treatment. 
I'm going to quote a bunch of bits, but just go read the whole thing. The author, Michael Pollan, points out that between 1953 and 1973, psychedelics were tested on alcoholics, people struggling with obsessive-compulsive disorder, depressives, autistic children, schizophrenics, terminal cancer patients, and convicts, as well as on perfectly healthy artists and scientists to study creativity, and divinity students to study spirituality. The clinical trials currently happening at NYU are part of a renaissance of psychedelic research 40 years after the Nixon administration effectively shut down most psychedelic research. Stanislav Grof, a Czech-born psychiatrist who used LSD extensively in his practice in the 60s, believes that psychedelics loosed the Dionysian element on America, posing a threat to the country's Puritan values that was bound to be repulsed. He thinks the same thing could happen again. Roland Griffiths, a psychopharmacologist at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, points out that ours is not the first culture to feel threatened by psychedelics. The reason Gordon Wasson had to rediscover magic mushrooms in Mexico was that the Spanish had suppressed them so thoroughly, deeming them dangerous instruments of paganism. There is such a sense of authority that comes out of the primary mystical experience that it can be threatening to existing hierarchical structures. Maria Sabina protected and shepherded these dangerous Dionysian pagan instruments which threaten hierarchy into the hands of multitudes of seekers. She may have lost control of it, but she also let it loose so wide it seems unlikely it'll ever be lost again. But what is it that mushrooms actually do? And is it the same thing that Yepes thinks poetry can do? Breaking boundaries and healing? How can a temporary shift in how our brain functions or perceives threaten hierarchies in society? And is this what a witch does with her spells? Her own inherited and improvised poetry, healing herself to heal the world? More from this New Yorker article. When, in 2010, Researcher Carhart Harris first began studying the brains of volunteers on psychedelics. Neuroscientists assumed that the drugs somehow excited brain activity. But when Carhart Harris looked at the results of the first set of fMRI scans, he discovered that the drug appeared to substantially reduce brain activity in one particular region, the default mode network. The network comprises a critical and centrally situated hub of brain activity that links parts of the cerebral cortex to deeper, older structures in the brain. Carhart Harris describes the default mode network variously as the brain's orchestra conductor, or corporate executive, or capital city. It's charged with managing and holding the entire system together. It is thought to be the physical counterpart of the autobiographical self, or the ego. He discovered that blood flow and electrical activity in the default mode network dropped off under the influence of psychedelics, a finding that may help to explain the loss of the sense of self that volunteers report. The biggest drop-offs in default mode network activity correlate with volunteers' reports of ego dissolution. It appears that with the ego temporarily out of commission, the boundaries between self and world, subject and object, all dissolve. These are hallmarks of the mystical experience. Carhart Harris found evidence in scans of brainwaves that when the default mode network shuts down, other brain regions are let off the leash. 
mental contents hidden from view or suppressed during normal waking consciousness come out to play. Emotions, memories, wishes, and fears, regions that don't ordinarily communicate directly with one another, strike up conversations. Neuroscientists sometimes call this crosstalk, often with bizarre results. When administered under supportive conditions, psilocybin occasioned experiences similar to spontaneously occurring mystical experiences. Participants ranked these experiences as among the most meaningful in their lives, comparable to the birth of a child or the death of a parent. More than a year after their psilocybin sessions, volunteers who had the most complete mystical experiences showed significant increases in their openness one of the five domains that psychologists look at in assessing personality traits. Openness, which encompasses aesthetic appreciation, imagination, and tolerance of others' viewpoints, is apparently a good predictor of creativity. So our brains have a tiny orchestra conductor in them, making sense of the world, giving it order. And when in overdrive, it becomes a tiny tyrant tied to depression and anxiety. Certain experiences can calm it, allowing us to experience the world more like we did before it developed. Little kids are without it and they constantly create the world and make their own bizarre rules in it. Personally, I went through a period of petting strangers' hair when I was about four. I remember my mom looking at me in slow-mo mouthing, Why? And that memory, like a lot of others from my childhood, feels heightened and hallucinatory and kind of high. Not that I really know what a mushroom trip feels like. The extent of it for me was one glorious, brilliantly cold day up at the lake house with a beautiful witch artist friend who had weaned herself off antidepressants and was microdosing mushrooms instead. So we joined her. Not enough to trip, mind you, just enough to paint and toboggan and play music and laugh all day like kids. The closest I came to feeling anything like what I've read described was after a crazy carpet run, heart beating hard in the white, cold, diamond sun, wind brilliant in the trees and the world, feeling spectacular. Prior to this, I have had some judgments and fears about psychedelics. I have been, in my life, at times, a kind of judgmental person, although that's not a trait I value. The first time I got drunk, I cried and told my friends I was a hippopotamus for having given them shit about drinking beers. I meant hypocrite. The reality was I didn't have an actual issue with them drinking, besides being afraid of losing them, of them going to a place I wasn't ready to go or a place I was afraid of, of them going anywhere without me, to be honest. I've got my abandonment stuff just like anyone. I think this is partially related to how I felt about psychedelics. I was medicated from chronic pain during the decade when my social circles were adventuring with mushrooms and LSD. Maybe those things could have helped me, actually. My pain grew as I clenched with fear around an injury. And I can imagine now how an expansive trip led by a healing guide could have lifted me, lifted my spine out of that trap earlier and saved me some tears, some time. But those drugs were for other people. They were a place I shouldn't go. I sat in judgment and in fear of most things. Some fear was reasonable. We knew people who lost on unguided trips. Young men for whom acid pulled a schizophrenic trigger and caught them in a trap that was never unsprung. 
there are some very known dangers to messing with this stuff unguided. Maria Sabina would ask you to be as honest as you could about what needed healing, and then she would stay with you and sing and dance and treat you with her identity-changing poetry all night until it passed. In current clinical trials, a therapist is with you through the entire experience, helping you find your way through what are often described as visions of birth and then of death and then back with a new belief that death is not an end. My co-producer Amy's experience was different. She wrote, LSD was the first drug I ever took. I'd love to say this was some grand planned spiritual quest, but the fact is I took whatever someone handed me first. I of course discovered psychedelia before I discovered psychedelics, but was enthralled by the music, art, and fashion of the mid-late 60s to the point of obsession. I knew by age 10 that I wanted to open the doors of perception, whatever that might mean. Expand your mind, sign me up. So let me tell you, on one hit of acid, you might feel strange, giggle, your reality may start to shift. But on four hits, you might discover the secret of the universe. At 15 years old, all pupils and grins, a girlfriend and I discovered that the secret of the universe is as follows. Everything is a circle. Now this is vague and probably not helpful, but I stand by it even today. She continues, I don't recall the first time I ate mushrooms. This is probably because where I come from, psilocybin wasn't a sacred magical tool for healing. It was a party drug eaten by the fistful in an attempt to, for lack of a better term, trip balls. That said, I was always kind of the mystic in the group, and on these nights where the holy children were consumed, I could be found dancing alone in a dark bathroom, or wandering off in search of nature, adventure, train tracks, or stillness. I honestly don't advise that you use drugs. Just take it from me and the lessons I've learned on my long, strange trips. Everything you sense is filtered through your perception, and you can change your perspective without drugs. When you change your mind, you change your reality. That's witchcraft, and that is sacred. As Maria Sabina said, and Amy and I agree, the drugs will only take you so far. Whether you are considering tapping into the highs of psilocybin, or yoga, or wine, or mountaintops, or therapy, or poetry, or weed, or power, or even witchcraft, may I suggest again, these drugs will only take you so far. To really open the doors of perception, I think we need to do more than just get high and repeat existing patterns. To escape the violence we're doing to the world and to each other, we need a language that enshrines our collective right to health, that makes our identities multiple and twisted to each other, and understands health and self-love on a scale so big we might need that mycelium drive to glimpse the expanse of it. For this great big view, let's take Maria Sabina, her bravery and vision and poetry as our patron saint and black virgin guide because I can swim in the immense, because I can swim in all forms, because I am the launch woman, because I am the sacred opossum, because I am the Lord opossum. I am the woman book that is beneath the water says, I am the woman of the populous town says, 
I am the shepherdess who is beneath the water, says. I am the woman who shepherds the immense, says. I am a shepherdess, and I come with my shepherd, says. Because everything has its origin. And I come going from place to place from the origin. Because everything has its origin, and I come going from place to place from the origin. You must be a witch. Thanks for listening to the Missing Witches podcast. If you want to know more about Maria Sabina, check out our show notes at missingwitches.com. And be sure to come back for Witches Found. This week I'm speaking to medicine woman Annie Lamarot about the tools that she uses, other than drugs, to connect with the spirit. So that's Missing Witches Sundays, Witches Found Wednesdays. Please like, share, subscribe. Follow us on social media at Missing Witches. And if you have stories about your own witchcraft or your families or witches that you've discovered, please email us. And blessed be.